Penang. It's an exotic island paradise in Southeast Asia where blindingly white sandy beaches melt into the silvery waters of the Malacca Straits. And the humid, tropical heat wraps you up in a comforting embrace, just like an old friend. Now, if you turn around, with the sea softly behind you, you face and feel the endless riot of blinding green rainforest rising up into the towering hills of this island. It's high up in these hills, 800 feet high up, that Joseph Teo and his wife run a small farm growing organic tropical fruit at an isolated place called Tuluk Bahang. In Bahasa Malayu, Tuluk Bahang means Bay of the Heatwave. My name is Ger Murphy. I'm the eldest of the Sullivan family. Last January, my brother Morris and his Polish partner Agnieszka were at that isolated farm in the Bay of the Heatwave in Malaysia. They had left their home in Galway some months before and only arrived there the night before we got that phone call. They'd gone to Penang to work on the farm digging fruit trees and in return they would have got food and accommodation. So we went down to the garden and um, we started digging and uh, there were roots from another tree on the way. So we decided to stop digging for a while in there and Maurice found another spot and it was easier. So he said, it's easier for me to dig in there. So I started digging and, and then, then he said he's going to ask Beatrice about those roots if we should keep digging there because, you know, you might just damage a tree or something. Keep digging there, <laughs> he said to me. And I said, you don't you be bossing me around. And we just laughed and he said, I'll be back in a sec. And he went off to the house and I stayed and I kept digging the hole. And then I heard him scream. I don't know Joseph and Beatrice Teo, and they don't know me. Yet through some strange fate, our lives are now intertwined. It started on the 9th of January this year, when my sister Frances woke up to a phone call that would change our family forever. The Sunday morning early, uh, the phone rang, and um, my husband answered the phone. I was still in the bed, it was very early. And um, a friend of mine said, uh, I have some bad news about Morris. Now, I knew immediately. I picked up the phone and rang my sister, who lives in Geneva. And I said to her, Morris is dead. And, of course, she said, what? What's, what are you on about? So I tried to explain it as best as I could. And I said, I'm trying to ring Agnieszka, but there's something wrong. Her phone isn't answering. She said, I have to tell the others. And I said, right, you tell um, the rest of the family and I'll try and get back to Agnieszka. So what I did was I rang Morris's number and Agnieszka answered it. So I was able to speak to her eventually and she told me what happened. Good morning, the headlines. An Irishman has died after he was mauled by two dogs at a farm on Malaysia's Penang Island. 
Local police said that the man had ventured into an organic farm to take photographs of its orchard when he was set upon by the dogs. I had just heard the news about half an hour before that headline. Patricia, my sister who lives in Switzerland, had rung me. I remember saying to my husband, does that make it more real or unreal? The last thing I ever imagined was that I'd hear a news headline on RTE that our 51-year-old brother Morris had been killed in Malaysia. Details were unclear at this stage, but we did know that Agnieszka had helplessly witnessed the attack. Having spent many years living in the west of Ireland, Morris was very close to my sister Frances, who lives in Roscommon. This one um, was taken just before Morris went to um, Malaysia in August. So that just gives you an idea of the kind of man he was sitting there in the field on a lovely bright sunny day with Shane Neal, his son. Uh, Appearance-wise, Morris would often have a big beard and a big head of curly hair. But then again, having said that, you could meet him a few months later and he'd be tightly shaved. He was very fun-loving. He played his bower on at the drop of a hat, sang songs like Black is the Colour and um, his other favourite one was um, Spansel Hill. I always loved him singing Spansel Hill. Um, he was very much into natural things, you know, he just loved nature, walking in on the beach, that's why he loved Connemara, walking in the forest. Wood was his all-time favourite thing, a restoration of wood. He'd get old boxes in second-hand stores and bring them back to their original state. And um, he had no interest in the wild, earthly world in money. He didn't even seem to understand the concept of money. He had no clue about income and expenditure. He was hopeless with money. Um, he just needed to have what he needed for that day or that week or whatever, you know. Very much a free spirit. Totally a free spirit. Morris was one of seven children. The first boy born after four girls. Celia, Francis, Patricia and me, Jar. Kieran came soon after him and then our youngest sister, Paula. We grew up in Ferrybank, County Waterford. Our parents, Nora and Davy, had met at the Tech in Waterford where she was doing the secretarial course and he was doing woodwork. Morris inherited his talent from him, and his death had a huge effect on Morris, who was 14 at the time. Definitely after Daddy died, Morris changed, and even going to school became a struggle. I think that was at a time where young kids or teenagers weren't really helped through the death of a parent. It just happened and you got on with your life and everyone tried their best to do whatever they could. And he did manage to do his leave insert. But after that then, he trained as a cabinet maker and woodworker. And um, he worked for a few years in Waterford and Wexford, sort of doing fitted wardrobes and kitchens and that kind of thing for people. Uh, he was always unsettled, wanting more, looking for other opportunities and looking for a different way to live his life. Morris really enjoyed travelling 
and he spent some time living in France in his 20s, then in Spain in his 30s, where he met a Norwegian girl, Elizabeth. They moved back to Ireland and lived here for a number of years. They were lucky enough to have a son, Shinil. He's now 15 years old and he lives with his mother in Norway. In his 40s, Morris decided to go back to college to study furniture restoration. And it was around this time that he met Agnieszka. I came to Ireland in 2005, in January. That's Well, I met Morris in 2001, and we met in Amsterdam. Um, we were best of friends from the first minute. We, I used to live in Holland before I came to Ireland. So um, I met him there, and uh, he was coming over to Poland, and then he was saying, oh, you have to come to Ireland, it's wonderful, and he convinced me to do it, so... So I came in January 2005, and, um, yeah. In the beginning, we were living in Lerfrak, in Connemara, because Morris was doing the college. Then we moved to my Holland, and then we were living for three and a half years in Crockwell, yeah. And, um, well, he started off a workshop in Crockwell with his friends, and, um, yeah, it was going, going great for them for a while. Morris met a guy uh, in Crockwell, a Malaysian man, Ree, and Ree spoke to Morris about uh, a plan for making a house out in the village where he lived. And Morris fell in love with this idea because his idea about wood would be to go into a forest, cut down a tree, make the planks, make the nails, you know, the wooden dowels, make a mallet and hammer everything together so that you're talking from the raw material to the finished product. And this idea just seemed to grow with him and he thought this would be something he could do that would be different from living in cold, dark, gloomy uh, west of Ireland in the rain with not much business. So on the the 8th of August of last year then, he went off um, with Ree. For for a long time they were talking about this. They had all these ideas that it's supposed to be a traditional Malay house with an open plan, and, and they, you know, and so they went together to Malaysia. And Morris was staying in his village, in my friend's village. No, this village had two hundred people. It's in the middle of nowhere in Malaysia, but it's surrounded that. With the most beautiful, oldest forest, tropical forest in the world. And Maurice is a forest person. And when he went there, it suddenly. He was in his spot. It was a beautiful river, and he could swim and go fishing with the lads, and he just fitted so perfectly in that spot. People have told us that the people he all fell in love with. They called him the hairy man because he had always had a big beard and a big head of hair. And I think the people who live out there don't have, like, body hair. But Morris was kind of hairy, you know what I mean? And he, they just loved him. And I think he, they didn't have um, a lot of skills in um, making and doing wood crafts. And Morris was teaching the local people how to make things and do things and... Um, 
he would ring me an odd time, very little really, uh, text a little bit as well. Um, I got the odd call then to say everything was brilliant, that I'd absolutely love it, I should come out. And it all seemed really different and wonderful when he'd explain what he was doing. Morris spent the next few months working on the house. Agnieszka then followed him over to Malaysia in November. Things had slowed down with the build on the house, so they decided to take a break to do something different. This led them to volunteering on an organic farm on the island of Penang. Well, I was with this uh, website called Helpix. It's a website with permaculture organic farms around the world that give you food and accommodation for a few hours' work. Like. And it's a great way of learning stuff and meeting people and cheap way of travelling as well. So that's the way we, we found the farm. And because they were looking for carpenters and, and they wanted help with a house, I thought, wow, perfect for us, both of us, like, because we can go, Morris can help him with the house, I can look at the garden, and I can help with the house a bit, and, you know, and we can be together on the farm. That was the plan, that we wanted to spend some time learning together. And, um, yeah, that's what we wanted for a long time, so... That's what we did. When Morris Sullivan answered a web advertisement to come and work on the remote Teo farm just after the new year, he and his partner, Agnieszka Jablonska, were quickly welcomed into the Teo family. Hospitality is a matter of honour and pride here in Penang. On the Saturday night before Morris Sullivan died, he and Agnieszka ate dinner with the Teos and played with the dogs, pitbull crosses. Their names are Kang, Yin, Ning and Lee. The childless couple considered the dogs their own children and they raised them as such from birth. Morris was washing up and we were dancing in the kitchen. Well, it was an outside kitchen. We were washing up dishes and dancing together, and, and I was laughing at him. I don't know why. So actually, it was only one room in the house, yeah? So we were a bit surprised that we're staying with the married couple in the same room and with the dog. So we were lying next to each other, and Joseph was snoring so loud. <laughs> we couldn't sleep like so Morris got up in the night. I heard him waking up like I was waking up all the time as well and and he went outside and uh, when the dog was barking on him when he came back, you know and the next morning uh, he was really grumpy when I woke him up because he didn't sleep well like. <clears throat> And he woke up and he said, Agnieszka, the dog was really going after me, you know. And I said, ah, you're exaggerating. Like, you know, he just didn't hear you coming back in, so obviously he's going to bark because he was asleep when Morris went out, but he woke up when Morris came back in, you know. And I just 
said, uh, don't worry about it. Like, because we talked about those dogs for an hour the night before with Joseph, you know. Because we were wondering why do they keep these dogs? Why this breed? I asked those questions. Why do you have four of them? And he said for a protection from wild animals. And then I asked why this breed? And he said because they are the most loyal dogs you can get. And then Morris was saying that you have to... Uh, you know, raise them up well, otherwise you have a problem. And said, oh yeah, I know, but I can assure you they will never bite. I can assure you they are very loyal. It's unclear what Morris Sullivan was doing the next day when he was attacked. Everyone here in Penang shrugs their shoulders and, with uncomfortable expressions, says they have no idea what triggered the mauling. It's believed he was planting durian trees, an exotic, prized and very expensive fruit that famously smells like hell and tastes like heaven. Heavily spiked and weighing up to three or four kilos each, these fruit go for up to a couple of hundred euros each. What we'd learn over the next couple of hours are a series of images I don't think I'll ever be able to get out of my head. I can't even imagine what Morris went through. I still can't even think about it. They had stayed the night before with a couple and they had been given a job to plant trees on his farm. And Morris got up that morning and they went down at about half eight in the morning and planted the trees. But because one of the trees that they were planting, the roots of the tree next door to it was in the way, Morris came back up to ask, would he plant the tree in a different place? And the two dogs attacked him. And then I heard him scream. He was saying something like, stop! I don't know how to. So I started running towards where he was screaming from. Well, the, the the house was like on the top of the hill. It was terraced. So it was good, I don't know how many metres between the house and the garden where I was in. And they were mature trees. hundred years old, like, you know, so they were really big. And then you had the chicken and... Turkey area and there were big stones in certain parts of the garden so you couldn't really see the house at such I mean you could see it on the top of the hill but it would be a big spread area with different stones and bushes and trees and stuff you know so I, I was a, a little distance away like so I ran towards the chicken area and I saw him standing on the top of the one of the hills and the dog was pulling him from the back of his leg. Well, both of them were, really. And they were trying to make him fall, you know? So they were pulling him in the back. And he just looked at me and he said, Help! 
and I just really didn't know what to do. Like I was just so confused in this. I I don't know. I so. They made him fall. And he rolled over from the hill. And Beatrice came running down and she had only a towel on her. She was in the shower or something and she started she kind of lie down on, on top of Morris, protecting him. But they were biting him from underneath her and they were like she couldn't do anything like she couldn't do anything and I couldn't do anything and he couldn't protect himself with the hand anymore you know and she was trying to pull one of the dogs off him and she was pulling him by the back legs and she managed to take one off Morris and I don't know what happened where did she disappear but I think she pulled the dog all the way up the hill to the to the kennels like um Agnieszka was absolutely traumatized she was trying, got help her to um, save Morris by um, throwing stones at the dogs, but she was terrified of them naturally enough. So um, I think what happened was Beatrice ran into the house and rang her husband, who was away from the farm at that time. They were biting, he was biting him by the neck, like... And Morris was just like a puppet, like. <laughs> and I asked him to get up. <laughs> Please, he just took it up. And I was trying to, I was trying to drag him up. I was trying to stand him up to go with me to the chicken house. I was trying to get him somewhere. And he was really trying to stand up. <laughs> he was kind of... <laughs> But he couldn't. <laughs> and then he said, I can't breathe. And I said, honey, you have to stand up because you're gonna bleed. Like, you can't. Like, you have to stand up, honey. <laughs> and I said, you're gonna bleed to death. <laughs> he said, I'm already dead. <laughs> But I don't know. I just I went up to the tool shed and I closed the door and I thought that if I open them again he will stand up. <laughs> I thought that if I close myself in and I open the door he will be just messing. 
I really thought he's gonna be okay. I really did, like... But he died. <laughs> and I got very sick. Beatrice got very sick and emotional. She couldn't believe it either. But Joseph... Joseph was... Joseph was very formal. He came, he arrived, he saw what happened. He covered Morris with bags after the chicken food. And he told me to go for a shower. And I didn't... I just stood up and went. I didn't... You do. And the dog was inside of the house. And I had to go around him to get to the toilet. Like I didn't believe in all of this. I really didn't. And then when I came back, the police was there already. And uh, they asked me for Maurice's passport. And they asked me for my passport. And... I just, it was like a movie. It wasn't real, you know? It's just too much to, to be able to say this happening. And they, more police started coming and more of them and then the press came and... And the first thing I said, I don't want any images of Morris in the press because I thought straight away his son and they just ignored me like he was left lying out in the midday sun for about five or six hours on the ground and Agnieszka was left sitting there waiting for something to happen little did we know at this stage that Morris's attack was to become big news across Malaysia as part of this programme, the documentary on one team asked global radio news reporter Terry Freel to gather some recordings on the ground. It's about lunchtime on January 9th that Tan Sin Chow, a local crime reporter for the National English Language Daily, The Star newspaper, first hears rumours of an attack. He finds it hard to believe... It's one of the most dramatic cases he has covered on this normally peaceful island. When I learned about the case, it's about uh, 1 p.m. So at first I was a bit uh, suspicious because uh, seldom got uh, we heard such a thing that a man was mauled to death by dogs. So we immediately I contact a few of my uh, fellow reporters. We asked around, and then in the end that uh, okay we got a confirmation from the police. So we just went up there. Uh, at first I felt that uh, wow, we have to cover another case but this time it's not a murder but it's what's uh, an Irishman being mauled to death by, by two killed dogs so I feel that uh, I went there with a heavy heart Agnieszka was completely on her own in Malaysia there was no way of knowing exactly what was happening naturally we wanted to travel over there 
but we knew that by the time we got there, it would be time to come home. All the time back in Ireland, we were grieving for our brother, while in Norway, Shanil was grieving for his father. I know when we left Whitmore's in the evening, like, because in Malaysia, there's always rain in the evening for a few hours, and then it stops. And it always arrives more or less in the same time. So you can almost measure your clock by the rain. And it started raining when we went to the car. When they put Morris in the car. So it took seven hours of me being there. Morris lying there. So we went. I followed and the police car which took Morris. And we went to the hospital. And and nobody knew what's going on. Nobody knew if Morris is going to have the autopsy. And since then I was getting a phone call from Irish embassy and then Shane Stevens was there representative of the Irish government in Malaysia and he was he was the best and he flew over the next day to meet me because I said I would really like you to be here and he just came and he was there all the time for me then from then on like you know he was really helpful and the Irish ambassador he's really lovely person like I don't know what I would do without him like I really don't because they help every, like they took care of everything around me. Even the simplest thing of crossing the road. <laughs> I like I was not capable to look. If he would be there, I don't know what I would do, like where I would walk. I don't know what I would do. Ireland's ambassador to Malaysia, veteran diplomat Declan Kelly, was on Christmas home leave when the news broke. He was horrified by the gruesome details he read on the web after being alerted by his son, who he was visiting in Brussels, and by the realisation that Agnieszka had been there to see the full horror. He immediately called his deputy and acting head of mission in Kuala Lumpur, Shane Stevens, and ordered him to Penang as quickly as possible to do whatever he could to help Agnieszka. What happened was we... We, we got Agnieszka, she came down here to, to KL and we actually arranged to have her stay in a hotel and it gave her a kind of a haven of tranquility away from everything and just a few moments to gather herself in a few days as we try to work our way through the immediate circumstances and decide what would be done, for example, in relation to, to Morris's remains, etc., what would happen. Uh, it took about um, seven or eight days, which is fairly normal in these circumstances. Of course, there has to be a post-mortem, had to be carried out. The cause of death was, of course, uh, severe hemorrhaging due to the extensive injuries that Morris had suffered. Um, and the decision was taken by the family uh, that Morris's remains would be cremated. And they were actually, the body was brought to Kuala Lumpur, where the cremation took place. And um, then... I understand that Agnieszka brought his remains back to Ireland. 
It took a full week for um, Agnieszka to get back and we went to the airport to pick her up and so did um, three of my sisters and myself and we met Agnieszka that morning, uh, which was really hard for all of us. Some of Morris's friends were there and Agnieszka's brother was there and, you know, she was really in a terrible, terrible state but she's a fantastic young woman and she you know, was great in the sense of looking after bringing Morris's remains back. So she came back here to Roscommon and um, she stayed with me uh, for a few days and we um, came together with friends and family and we um, had a little ceremony here at my house for Morris and um, said prayers and the following day then... um, we had had more prayers and, uh, you know, we sang songs for Morris. His son came with his mother from Norway and um, we came down then and we scattered his ashes down in um, his favourite beach. And that was it, really. We're lucky enough to have Morris's camera which is full of photos and some home movies. Agnieszka brought it back from Malaysia with her. Here he is with Agnieszka doing one of his favourite things. Trees are great. Planting trees on his friend Joachim's farm in Galway. Well, the trees start over here, along the ditch there, and then they go all the way, come with me, this way, all across here, over here, and there's about 3,000 trees. Of a mixed variety. <laughs> what kind of trees you can find in here? Well, we can find the nicest one really is walnut. We can find beech. Walnut. What is this one? That one is, we think, Norwegian maple. <laughs> but then again, we're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the green stuff? The green stuff, that's grass. No! You don't have that in Poland? Yeah, we do, but I mean this one. Scott's Point. Scott's Point. Okay. Thank you. Since then, we've all been trying to get on with our own lives, I suppose, and accept what happened. But it's very hard to do that, considering that up until today... The owners of the dogs have been back in court on different occasions to try and save the lives of the dogs. And they they had four dogs altogether. Two of them were locked up that particular day and the other two killed Morris. And there isn't a word about Morris and his death. It's all about the dogs and keeping the dogs alive. Morris Sullivan's horrific death shocked Malaysians and especially the small, predominantly Chinese community of Penang. The lawyers involved in this case and the journalists covering this case confirm that Tio's, Agnieszka and Morris Sullivan's family agreed almost immediately to put down the two dogs involved in the attack. They were Ning and Li. And to release the other pair, Yin and Kang, to live on the farm but under strict supervision and to be kept away from people. Penang authorities charged the TOs with breaching municipal bylaws, 
criminal charges would have involved proving intent and been too hard to pursue under Malaysian law. On April 4th, Penang Magistrate Muhammad Hidayat Wahab, in a hearing at which the Tios had no legal representation, fined the couple 8,000 Malaysian ringgit, that's roughly about 1,900 euro, for possessing four unlicensed dogs without collars. The magistrate's order for the two dogs involved in the killing to be put down and for the other pair to be dealt with was misinterpreted by the Penang Island Municipal Authorities as ruling all four had to be put to sleep. Lawyers on both sides agree that this was misinterpreted. The decision by the Penang authorities triggered a High Court challenge and months of legal and public and often bitterly emotional debate. The Tios, according to their lawyer, Gerald Gomez, are too traumatised to speak to RTE for this documentary. Uh, the Tios had uh, originally agreed to having two dogs put down, the two dogs that were involved in the mauling of uh, Morris, uh, put down. And I think from the start they, had been ag- they, they were agreeable to that. You know, it's just that the municipal council had decided to put all four dogs down and uh, they couldn't get past that, so they needed some legal representation. That's where we came in. We spoke to those in authority. They seemed to be fixated on killing all four dogs, I guess, because of the repercussions they had with, uh, uh, with tourists coming down and the effect that that had on Malaysian tourism. Of course, we had to then challenge the manner in which they went about doing that without proper inquiry without ascertaining which dogs were involved, uh, was, wasn't easy. Because as far as everybody was concerned, they were just dogs, you know, put them down to sleep, whether or not they were guilty or innocent, whether or not they were involved. So it took some time before the public, as well as the courts and the municipal council, began to see that dogs have rights too, and only those involved should, be, uh, should suffer the consequences of their actions not dogs who are completely innocent, who are not even at the scene of the crime. Although mainly Muslim, Malaysia is a dog-loving nation. While rich Malaysians may pay tens of thousands of euros for just one animal, many, like the Tios, keep dogs to guard against jungle predators. The decision by the Penang authorities to kill all four dogs, or even just the two involved in the killing, sparked an animal rights backlash More than 2,500 people alone signed one online petition calling for the dogs to be spared. That petition was posted in May and gathered pace as the High Court deadline for a final appeal approached. One line of that argument is that the dogs could have been acting out of self-defence. It pointed out they were trained as guard dogs like many other farm dogs. The office of the Penang State Chief Minister also received a flood of text messages and emails calling for the dogs to be saved. But some other dog lovers wrote to newspapers saying once dogs kill, they can kill again. Penang officials declined to talk to RTE for this documentary. But those involved in the case agree the municipal authorities and the federal government felt heavily pressured to protect Penang's popularity as a tourist destination. The attack and the following legal fighting 
have been covered widely here in the English, Chinese and Malay language media and all around Asia. We were shocked to read newspaper reports that the Tios had appealed the court decision to have the dogs put down. It was so insulting and hurtful for us to read that the dogs were simply doing their job of protecting their owner's land, that Morris and Agnieszka were trespassing on the Tio's land, that Morris provoked the dogs, that the Tio's dogs deserved to live. What about our brother's right to life? We have the highest respect for cultural differences. Despite our loss, we strove to understand their love for their dogs. They were getting support to keep their dogs alive. It seemed simply and sadly unfair. We were represented in court by Kuala Lumpur-based lawyer Cedric Miranda. This is a case of uh, vicious pit bull, pit bull terriers, pit bull dogs. They were vicious. They had taken a life and they should have been immediately destroyed. Subsequent investigation from the Penang State Veterinarian found them to be a crossbreed with various other mixes, undetermined mixes. If you look at the injuries, if you look at the police reports, it's a particularly vicious attack, repeated wounds all over Sullivan's body. If they were acting in self-defense, these are not defensive wounds. Uh, this was a vicious attack. They brought him down. They brought him down, and even when he was down, they continued to maul him. It was not in self-defense. I must stress that Sullivan was not a trespasser. I have a photograph here showing him relaxing in the Teo's house when the media were not given the right information. Perhaps they questioned the wrong people. He was a friend of the Teo's. He was interested in organic farming. He was no stranger to the dogs. There's no evidence that he provoked the dogs. The dogs were left free on the farm. We never know why the dogs attacked him, but I've read journal, in journals that this particular breed is it, an unpredictable breed, pitbulls. It's actually banned in a few countries. From the time of the attack on Morris in January to the magistrate's ruling in April, followed by high court reprieves, twice in May and again in June, there seemed to be no end to the struggle to get the dogs put down. In the meantime, our mother had died on the 12th of June, a Sunday morning, five months to the day after Morris died. This letter is from poor Sheenil. It was read out in court. Um, he's very sad, very lonely. Liz, his mother, tells me that he doesn't like really speaking about it. He's too upset about it. I think it'll take him a long time to just accept what happened to his father. 2nd of June 2011. I'm Chanel Morris Sullivan's son. I'm 15 years old. My mom has to help me write this letter because I cannot talk about how Dad died yet. My dad was a very kind man. He loved nature and everything that grows and hated war and conflict. He loved dogs. We all just had a dog. When I was three, mom and dad gave me a collie puppy. We called him Billy. When Billy was three years old, mom had to put him down because he was chasing the neighbor's sheep, hurting them. I was so sad, but I knew mom had to do it. That's what I don't understand about the couple who owned the dogs that killed dad. 
I cannot bear to think of the dogs still alive and that maybe they will go back and live on the farm. What they did to Dad, they can do to someone else. Everyone knows that. I am like Dad. I don't need revenge. And that's not why I ask you to put the dogs down. I ask you to put them down so they won't do it again to someone else. I also ask you to put the dogs down to show Dad the respect he deserves. He was a very humble man and had an amazing respect for everyone. I asked the country that Dad came to love so much to show him the last respect. I can't believe I won't see him again. On the 5th now of July, we're hoping that um, when they go to court again, the lawyer who will be speaking for the family uh, will be hoping that as the government out there said that the dogs were to be put down, we're just hoping that that's all that's going to happen. That's all we want. We just need those two dogs that killed Morris to be put down. That's all we're asking for. That's all we feel we need. We're not going to do anything besides that. But after a battle it seems no one wanted and faced with the final deadline, the parties came to a consent agreement tendered to the Penang High Court on July 11th. A day later, Judge Yaqub Mohammed Sam issued an order approving that consent agreement and ordered Nin and Lee put down. The two dogs were put to sleep in Penang just after lunch on July 14th at the state veterinary complex. Lee first and Ning a few minutes later. The other two dogs, Yin and Kang, have gone home to the fruit farm on condition they be kept locked up and away from the farm workers, tourists and any other visitors. The fact that the dogs have been put down doesn't change reality for us. These attacks are quite common. However, it's rare for a person to actually die. We would, however, like to see the laws surrounding the control of dogs to be strengthened in every country, and more importantly, for these laws to be actually implemented. Morris had found a place on earth where he was happy and respected for his talents. He will always now be associated with this place, Malaysia. In a sense, he travelled to Penang to meet his death. In the weeks following the news of his death, my brain seemed to have frozen. People who have experienced a shock will understand. But a story I'd read over 30 years ago kept coming back. It's called Appointment in Samara by Somerset Maugham. The moral of the story is that you can't escape death. He will keep his appointment with you, no matter how you may try to avoid it.